0: And gain access to patron-only broadcasts and other perks. Support us on Patreon at Two for Tea. Welcome to the conversation. Hello, everyone. My guest this week is Josh Zepps, and Josh is an independent broadcaster and podcaster, uh, and he also makes regular appearances on Australian TV and on the ABC network in Australia. And he's coming to us from, uh, you're in Sydney, Josh, is that right?
1: Yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. And
0: I'm coming to you from Buenos Aires, as, as usual. Welcome, Josh.
1: Thanks. I feel like we're kind of conquering the world uh, for the Southern Hemisphere here. Am, am I your first Southern Hemisphere guest who's not based in Buenos Aires?
0: I think think you are. In fact, I haven't had any guests from Buenos Aires on the podcast yet. So I've had no Argentine guests. I think you are my first Southern Hemisphere guest. Is it hot there as well? It's roasting here.
1: No, it's beautiful here. It's uh, sort of in the mid to high 20s Celsius. So like, uh, you know, high 70s, low 80s Fahrenheit. It was brutally hot um, earlier in the summer, in the Southern summer. But uh, yeah, it's, it's quite pleasant there.
0: Yeah, it's at I'm almost fainting at in during ballet class levels at the moment here. <laughs> that's how I kind of measure it. If I have that feeling, like, Ooh, after too many pirouettes, that's kind of when you hit the forty Celsius mark.
1: Yeah, my uh, my yardstick is usually how many seconds does it take me from entering the front door to turning the air conditioning on. Uh, Well, Uh, that's that's my that's my yardstick.
0: No air conditioning here. (laughs) We are. No, not
1: to not to be dismissive of Argentina, but uh, Australia is a first world country and we have air conditioning.
0: (laughs) Yeah, maybe we can have that conversation about Argentina and the first world um, a little later on. But I would like to. um, So you have been uh, working in media for a long time. How long, Josh?
1: Well, all my life, um, it's all I've ever done. Uh, So out out of school, I studied journalism and communications, social, political, historical studies and that sort of thing with an eye to becoming either a journalist or a comedian, but preferably both. Uh, My heroes were the John Stewarts of the world. And um, and I, I just felt like going into comedy would be a thankless task and probably not necessarily do justice to how interested I was in current events and uh, and sort of bigger ideas than just how funny it is that aeroplane food doesn't taste nice or whatever it was that stand-ups were doing at the time that I was graduating. Uh, and so, yeah, I, w- I became a radio journalist and and moved my way into essentially performing from journalism rather than moving my way into journalism from uh, performing. And now I am. Uh, I have a radio show on Radio National in Australia, which is the, the public broadcaster. That's a weekly panel show about the ethics of things that are going on in the news. That's called The People Versus. And you can actually get it as a podcast anywhere. It's a, it's a really interesting show, if I say so myself. And I host about three or four months of Breakfast Radio, which is the 6 to 10 a.m. slot on ABC Radio Sydney, which is sort of like the BBC And I also have a podcast of my own called We the People Live, uh, which you have been uh, a guest on. That's spelled with a hashtag in front of it. We the People is all one word. I'm not sure why I end up with shows that all have the word people in it. It wasn't intentional. But uh, there's the the People (laughs) people versus and We the People Live, and I'm also doing a show at the Melbourne Comedy Festival, which starts at the end of March, uh, called hashtag You Too after the Me Too movement uh, about political correctness and why social media is making us all crazy.
0: So um, without wanting to, I mean, it's rude to ask a gentleman his age, but what year did you begin your career?
1: (laughs) I I mean, I know you're younger
0: than me. so Let's
1: just say I'm a a, a child of the the late 80s and 90s, and um, so my career began in the 2000s. And, yeah, I mean, I guess I've been working – professionally for uh, over a decade, for, you know, a dozen years or more.
0: So um, can you tell me some of the changes you've seen since you started working in the media?
1: Um, Well, I mean, everything has changed so much. It used to be that there were gatekeepers to uh, who could say what and who could have a show, and, of course, that's fallen apart completely because podcasting has enabled everybody to have a radio show YouTube has enabled everybody to have a television show and the proliferation of cable television first and then subsequently streaming uh, outfits like Netflix and, and Amazon has so massively increased the quantity and I'd also say quality of television uh, and combined with that, the movie industry has, has changed so completely from being focused on uh motion picture theaters and cinemas to consuming it at home that um there's no longer a sort of a national or let alone international consensus about what we're all consuming about what we're all watching i think that's the biggest change you know when i was entering the the industry there were still shows like for example david letterman where you could say to someone on the street or in an office or at high school, did you see what Dave did last night? And people wouldn't laugh at you. I, I can't think any more of there being shows like that. So I think there's been, on the one hand, a great uh, burgeoning and blossoming of the number of voices, but at the same time that comes with its costs, which is that the, um, the sort of hierarchy of quality has collapsed so there might be quite a lot of good things that you can surf through and watch but there's no um there's no common ground on which our culture stands anymore. Um yeah and that, and then of course that has all kinds of implications in the news gathering business for fake news and 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 whatever else which I'm sure we'll get into.
0: Yeah it seems to me that unfortunately and rather perversely some of the common ground now is um outrage on Twitter. Um You know, uh, when you're on Twitter, (laughs) the common ground is what is everybody pissed off about today? Um, Mm. And i definitely I always feel like I need to comment on that. And, uh, you know, a lot of people say, well, you should just ignore that kind of news cycle. But it provides a, a commonality. It means that you can enter a conversation that is already in place and people will know what you're talking about. You don't have to start from the beginning. But unfortunately, that is all centered around, it's kind of outrage porn.
1: Mm. Yes, it is. And, and it's amazing, actually, how insular and small that world is once you step away from it, which I've been trying to do more of. Yeah. That, you know, you can, if you spend quite a lot of time on Twitter, then a story like the, the Covington High School, uh, Marga Hatter teens, uh, in a, you know, standing up to the Native American with a drum becomes like this all-consuming kind of Rorschach test that the whole universe is chiming in on, and then the moment you shut down Twitter, it's just a few small op-ed pieces in the mainstream press, and those op-ed pieces are only are only about how Twitter got it wrong, or right, or whatever you know. And so i I think it's the 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 uh, the the creation and the development of social media, Twitter in particular, has kind of spewed itself out onto the cultural landscape in a totally untrammeled uh, way in a way that that has no kind of boundaries or parameters and so we we're we are kind of swimming in this giant soup of it all. And I do think that in the future in five years, ten years, certainly 20 years we will be engaging with these platforms in ways that are considerably more cautious and nuanced and we won't mistake them for real life. I think we'll be better at understanding that they are their own self-contained uh, self-contained bubbles and that real news and real conversations actually largely now take place off Twitter. And I think that'll continue to be the case unless, unless Jack Dorsey and the Twitter team can find a way to curate conversations that are more constructive. And I don't know what that would look like without being accused of censoring people. Um, and that's already such a hot button topic that uh, yeah, the, to the extent that Twitter occupies your uh, your news-consuming consciousness, and your and 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 to the extent that Twitter is a stand-in for the conversations that you want to have about what's going on in the world, that is the extent to which I think you are totally misguided <laughs> about the reality of of what is actually taking place on this planet.
0: Mm. Where do you think the alternative conversations? Could take place because on Facebook, for example, um, I don't, I never ever discuss politics because my real life friends and associates are there. And uh, so there's too much co- cost to getting into a fight. And people are very, very reactive. So the Covington thing was one of the few, one of the actually few things from Twitter that I. I spotted I don't use Facebook terribly much anymore but that I spotted people are uh, talking about on Facebook as well and yeah. they were all posting it in the most extreme ways and if somebody reacted disagreeing they instantly unfriended them and these are people who know each other in real life so I I I stay absolutely away from any political discussions on Facebook because they just get personal and nasty so so fast and I guess there is this podcast, but this uh, a podcast of this kind, not just this one, <laughs> um, but uh, where you can have one-on-one conversation. But I'm not sure where the kind of public square is anymore. What the our equivalent is of the coffee house, unless it's Twitter. I mean, it's a very Twitter is also a very small kind of group of mostly writers and journalists and academics talking to each other. So there's something very incestuous Mm. about it. You know, it's the it's a thing that Samuel Johnson envisaged when he said every man, you know, every man is now an author. There are no readers left. So Mm. each man must be Mm. content to be his own reader. It feels a bit like that. I'll listen to your bollocks if you'll listen to mine, kind of thing.
1: (laughs) That's right. Yeah, I mean, I don't know what the statistics are like in Argentina. But uh, in Australia, the vast majority of people are not on Twitter. I mean, I think the Twitter uptake rate is, well, I know that it's in the single digits. It might be as low as 1% or 2% of the population is on, is on Twitter. So you're right that it is a, it's a community of journalists and influencers all talking at each other and increasingly trying to score political points against each other. And when you say, like, where is the public square, now, you know where is the new coffee house? I think it still is the coffee house. I think it still is. You do? Uh, I never our, have our conversations with strangers our, in our a coffee house. Or friends. well, why do they, why do they need to be strangers?
0: Oh well, I guess. But um, if I talk to people in a coffee house, it's a friend one on one. And I don't think I, politics, I think it's an illusion
1: yeah. that there ever was an era in which the majority of people struck up. Uh, political conversations with strangers in coffee houses. Oh no, not uh, uh, nev- that may have been the norm in the nineteen sixties in Paris, but
0: um Oh never not never the majority, but, but it was a a thing for a minority of people. You would go and you would borrow the newspaper. I think newspapers had on average seventeen readers each, somebody I think uh someone calculated mm. in the seventeen hundreds. And uh, so you would you would never buy a newspaper. You would go to the coffee house, and you paid for the privilege of reading the newspaper there.
1: Well, that's a similarity with today. Nobody yeah. buys newspapers anymore yeah, either. That's true. I think the closest thing to that sort of I don't I don't think it's necessary for us all to be sharing the uh, the the same point of view on things. The way it would have been when we all had had when we all shared around one major metropolitan newspaper. I don't. I think today, for all that we bemoan how chaotic and antagonistic and partisan the media environment is, I, I wouldn't trade today's environment for an old environment in which uh, old, stale, pale, white males talked at you at 6.30 in the evening for half an hour and that was where you got your news from, the world of Cronkite and the New York Times and that was it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Today is uh, a more, uh, so there are certainly so many more voices that it's more confusing, but there are so many more voices that, it, that there is also greater opportunity. And our challenge now and what I sort of see my challenge as being someone who's worked at the coalface of uh, of new media in the form of, I worked for, uh, uh, for the Huffington Post and helped found HuffPost Live, which was their big, audacious 24-hour, well, not 24-hour, 16-hour a day news network um, streaming of uh, streaming video uh, between its launch in 2012 and its demise in, in 2016. Uh, when I when I think about the speed and pace and frenetic kind of chaotic news gathering of an online outfit like that, and I compare that to the very conventional, old-fashioned, professional establishment. Uh, trends and policies of a place like the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, the nation's public broadcaster and oldest broadcaster. I sort of see my role as bridging those two worlds and helping to find a way for us to unite the professionalism of traditional meat, of traditional journalism with the uh, spontaneity and pace and creativity and excitement of the web and at the moment that is just a gigantic shit show and you know there is and no one has quite figured out how to how to do that you know you'll you'll watch cnn for example and you'll see a very conventional predictable show with a very conventional predictable sort of phony debate where it's it's the easiest most stupid form of of broadcasting
0: Mm, mm.
1: and journalism to have, here's a person who says one thing and here's another person who says another thing and let's get them to shout at each other with their pre written uh, policy positions and not actually engage with what the other person is saying, but simply spout an an opposing line. And I mean, this is Fox news you know, bread and butter, but it's also spilled over into CNN and and MSNBC to, to some extent. And, at the end of one of those segments, you'll see the presenter, the host, say something like, uh, you know, now let's, let's take a look at what you have to say. Let's go to Twitter and they'll say, you know, uh, Botface77 says uh, Donald Trump is right to, to, to build the wall. He, that's what he ran on. And so they'll give this tokenistic gesture to social media in an attempt to seem hip. And it won't have any of the kind of organic, spontaneous... Uh, excitement of what social media is supposed to deliver and i think that at some point very soon we're going to start seeing shows that are able to do both that are able to actually feel a little bit more like a reddit thread or um a an internet rabbit hole but still have the professional standards of conventional media and at least that's what I'm trying to do. So I think the coffee house and the public square will survive in conventional media. I mean, I'm trying to think what they are right now. You know, you could do worse than than John Oliver's show. You could do worse than Stephen Colbert's show mm-hmm. uh, in terms of having places where people are able to articulate complicated ideas. You could do worse than Joe Rogan's podcast. I mean, these are things, these are things that have many, many millions of Of viewers, and I think the state of conversation there is healthy. It's just not healthy in the enormous miasma of the rest of the junk that um, Mm. that is being thrown out, thrown up, and it's not healthy in the old, staid, conventional, legacy media outfits like CNN, which which continue to take the most predictable uh, and and uncreative uh, line on everything.
0: I mean, talking about the old state um, media, how do you feel about um, what is happening in outfits like the New York Times and the Guardian? I don't know if they've always been like this, but the op-eds and the leading writers are, many of them are kind of trolls on Twitter. I mean, that may not be their only identity, but they may, you know, they're kind of deliberately provocative and even sort of bullshitty and nasty on Twitter. And then uh, there are a lot of extremely kind of perverse takes. You know, recently The Guardian is publishing one of its, its sub-editor, I think, published a piece defending uh, the young woman, a British um, teenager who ran away to join ISIS. Yes. And uh, his, his stance is that she was very courageous to go to join ISIS and we should be aware applauding her for having done this courageous act and we would be applauding her if it weren't for the fact that her skin is brown Mm -hmm. and um you know kind of clearly ludicrous takes like that which seem like they are just just written for the sake of pure contrarianism and i mean there are also examples on the right do you feel that is something new that phenomenon
1: um, I can't speak to The Guardian because I don't read The Guardian's opinion columnists. Um, for The New York Times, I don't find it to be needlessly contrarian. I like the the, the balance of The New York Times um, op-ed page. I think they've got some interesting sort of conservatives in the form of Ross Douthat and uh, Brett uh, Stevens. Um, I think Barry Weiss is, a, is an interesting writer and then you've got the, the people on the left like Krugman although he's a Nobel Prize-winning economist so I don't know how whether you can accuse him of being uh, a, a card-carrying leftist um, So is it the case that conventional traditional old school publications are being a little bit uh, gimmicky in being in, in kind of provoking on Twitter Probably? Is it the case that they are chasing clickbait by having contrarian headlines and pieces um, about someone like the ISIS teenager? Possibly. I'd have to read the piece to know whether or not it's just a provocation or whether it's a, a smart contrarian take mm-hmm. that uh, that is seeking to disrupt our easy assumptions mm. because it is possible. I mean, any time you have a consensus around a political question, that is that runs, you know, upwards of ninety-five percent of people all agree with X. I do think there's utility in making the case for not X, mm, mm. and it's very easy to say that uh, a someone who's joined ISIS and seems unapologetic about having joined ISIS uh, is a crazy, evil lunatic who we shouldn't give the time of day to. So I, I would see a, I would see some usefulness in a journalistic publication to try to put a counter case to that for just one article out of the hundreds or thousands of articles that I'm sure are being written, uh, which all agree with each other on the opposite side. So I don't I don't actually I haven't noticed a, um, and again this comes partly from my attempt to split Twitter apart from the out uh, away from the rest of my life because I have no idea how trigger happy columnists are being on Twitter, but I really don't care because um, I I just don't think that, you know, you you look at someone who has a, a following of millions and millions of people, a Krugman, for example, and he can write a piece in The Times and that can be read by more people and more influential and important people with greater seriousness and attention and greater thought having gone into it than any tweet because even if you have 10 million followers the number of people who see who happen to see the tweet your tweet in their feed at the particular time that that you tweet it unless it creates a firestorm is a fraction of your total followers so i think again this might be if you are if you're perceiving that from the guardian and the times on twitter it might be more a case of focusing too much on twitter than mm, any mm. change in the guardian or Times.
0: right well i definitely do i mean i i no longer read any newspapers directly but I follow people I, I like, like Sarah Hayden.
1: <laughs> this could be a major part of the problem. Yeah. I if you're only reading the articles that blow up on Twitter, then you're only well, reading the, nec- the most uh, controversial. Not
0: articles. necessarily that blow up, but I'm reading the ones that Sarah Hayder shares, for example, and I read what Kathy Young shares. And yeah, so I tend to, I've um, and what Rohini Menon shares. So I tend to, I follow the people I kind of admire and then I read the articles they share. Mm. So I, uh, not, most of which haven't, most of which haven't blown up, I think. But yeah, there's definitely a yeah, danger in, in looking at things through the yeah, wrong Yeah, look,
1: I, I, I sort of think, I sort of think the, that there's a question of, of, the, of the time, the pace of things. You asked me at the beginning, like what has changed since I first started out in the media. Uh, in in the two thousands, and one other thing that changed, apart from the proliferation of different media sources, is the pace and time has gotten so much faster. Uh, and in some respects, what you're saying now about uh, consuming articles that people who you like and admire share on Twitter is partly a consequence of that and i do think that that's actually part of the problem um if i mean some people you know i've gone through periods where i have not read the daily paper on the grounds that if an event is not covered in the weekend new york times or the economist it probably wasn't worth paying attention to just in strictly in terms of news stories about about being informed about what's happening in the world. I'm not saying that there aren't all kinds of interesting things that don't get published in those two publications. But in terms of understanding the events of the world, if you read The Weekend New York Times and The Economist, you'll have a rough idea of the big stories that you need to pay attention to. And if you read The Daily Paper, then you get a little bit more information, but you also get more distracted by more things that will turn out to not be relevant in the long run and if you get your news from twitter then every momentary provocation from the president of the united states becomes this big thing that creates an enormous fireball that lasts for about a split second and (laughs) the moment the kabuki dance is over everyone moves on to the next thing like like cats chasing a laser pointer Mm. and you know we're 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 not we don't have our eyes on the big picture. Yeah. So part of what I try to try to do in my commentary and my comedy and my journalism is to find interesting intriguing ways of conversing about the things that are that are in the big picture mm. rather than being distracted by by the momentary stuff because I think the the speed and the pace and the distraction of of our consumption of media at the moment is not conducive to talking about what really matters.
0: Right. Yes, I'm 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 sure yeah I mean, I don't scroll the feed looking for news but mm. but I do allow other people to curate it for me um because I definitely mm-hmm. do not want to read the daily paper for a while. I did read The Economist religiously, but I feel I would like to do something more exciting with my Sunday morning. <laughs>
1: Something more exciting with your Sunday mornings than reading about a sovereign debt crisis in southern Europe? (laughs) (laughs)
0: Um, And I kept on, it's funny, I kept on subscribing to The Economist for a long time after I stopped reading. I continued to subscribe until we were no longer receiving, uh, until our international mail service broke down. So um, The Economist was no longer arriving. Nothing was arriving because I I don't live in the first world. but um, (laughs) We've established that
1: on the basis of the air conditioning.
0: I went on subscribing for about six months, even though I didn't read it, because kind of just the act of having it there, I felt as though it would somehow make me smarter by osmosis.
1: (laughs) All it does is make you feel guilty when you subscribe, because the the, the magazines pile up on on the coffee table, and you go, oh, fuck, another one already? I can't believe I've got... I've only just, I have only just felt, started opening the one before the one before last. Yeah, I've never subscribed. Uh, I think that that's just too Herculean an effort to attempt to read one a week. But picking one up when you feel like it is, is a good habit to have.
0: Yes. I mean, that's kind of how I use the Twitter shared articles. I try to read one article a day. and But, yes, I... You know, I've made a decision, I've made more or less a decision not to follow Argentine politics. So I only follow mm-hmm. if there's some huge thing going on mm. uh, or right before the elections. And um, so I vo- I voted for the losing um, left wing um, president, the presidential candidate. So, you know, before the elections, I was reading up a little bit on Scioli and Macri, the two rivals for the presidency, but... If you don't follow Argentine politics week by week, uh, there's no, you will be completely baffled for quite a long time. It's like listening to The Archers if you haven't listened to it before. If you're not Mm. a regular listener, you can't tell the voices apart and you've no idea what's going on, you know, down at Grange Farm and who is having an affair with whom and whose turnips got spoiled by the frost and things. Because it's all about personalities and who is corrupt and who did this and who did that, and it's all personalities and football. The most popular <laughs> journal Clarín is fifty percent football, and I'm not joking. I'm not exaggerating. Um, <laughs> so,
1: it's funny. Isn't I it? have decided yeah.
0: that I just can't. Life is too short. I'm just not keeping up with Argentine politics much at all. I can't basic. say I
1: blame you on I can't say I blame you on that but, uh, <laughs> I think we could all uh, happily go for, for many many weeks without learning anything about uh, Argentinian <laughs> politics <Yeah. laughs> Until or did... unless there's some calamity
0: Yes, I did study Argentine history, but that means that my knowledge of Argentina stops at um, 1983. Basically, <laughs> I did right up, up to the restoration of democracy. <laughs> and I That's great. There. So
1: you're just you are frozen Freaking in relaxed. Aspic, like a little mosquito in Jurassic Park, which still <laughs> thinks that it's 1983. Someday they're going to thaw you out like an unfrozen caveman. And you're going to wander wander the streets uh, listening to early Michael Jackson and Madonna albums and wearing a lot of pink leotards.
0: Oh, no, it was Culture Club. Do you really want to hurt me? Culture and Duran Duran. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> um, I'm a little older than little you. I actually remember 1983 very clearly. <laughs> <laughs> you were I talking about kind of just returning to media before we get off track. Mm. You said that you're very interested in exploring the subject of taboos and self censorship in in the media world, mm. and I wonder if you feel if you feel that the current climate is very conducive to self censorship what you feel about um cancel culture or whether you feel there's a kind of reward to being edgy and contrarian that people are you know perversely also latching onto
1: mm, that's interesting. I suppose both things are happening, but the former is happening more. I do still think that cancel culture is the dominant um, the dominant motif that we've got this puritanical sort of new religion, really, where there are these orthodoxies that you're not allowed to transgress. Um, And again, this is also still, I suppose, another strand of an answer to the first question you asked about what's changed in the media. We have become much more strident, I think. Um, And I think this is partly a result of social media. Um, I think that... Social media rewards, so this is the basic thesis of my show at the Melbourne Comedy Festival, which people should get tickets to at uh, comedyfestival.com.au. Uh, it's called YouTube. And the basic thesis is that, that social media rewards engagement and engagement happens not as a result of nuance, right? So, so Facebook wants likes and comments and shares. That's how Facebook makes money because those things keep you on the site for longer. It's the same with Twitter. Uh, Twitter keeps you coming back by providing you with things that uh, give you a dopamine hit, that excite you in some way, that arouse you physiologically and emotionally in some way. And nobody gets the kick out of a uh, out of a, a, a sort of a moderate, well thought out. On this hand, on the other hand, uh, thesis. People get a kick out of animal instincts and tribalism, and us mm. and them thinking. That's what fires you up, whether it's making you angry about something that you disagree with or making you passionate about something that you do agree with. That is, that is just what the, the mindless algorithms of social media drive us towards because they don't they don't care one way or another why we're engaging. They just care that we engage with the platform and stay on the platform and increase our time on site. And my sense is that part of being consumed by social media uh, is... A kind of a, a turning up to eleven, the volume of our own self certainty, so that we we are encouraged by social media to think tribally, to think in uh, to think in strident ways, and that that then spills out into the broader, I suppose, coffee uh, coffee house culture, the public sphere, and and has partly contributed to to us being so entrenched in our dogmatic positions where we're firing shots at each other like some kind of trench warfare uh, in a zero-sum mentality where uh, if you say something that I disagree with about trans issues or about Black Lives Matter or about the Me Too movement or about any of these hot button things that are going on, immigration, then you are not just a person who has a different perspective, you are an enemy to be vanquished, and that is a, a big, big problem. And unless we can find a way to converse about these things where our starting point is to be generous to the other side, to be generous to a person who might not be quite as woke as us, then we're never going to – not only are we are we not going to be, be just towards them and their point of view – we're not going to succeed in whatever we want to achieve either, because nobody, nobody wants to collaborate with someone who thinks that they're a bigoted dick. They only want to collaborate with people who seem to have some level of generosity towards their own point of view. So I do worry a lot about, yeah, the division and, uh, and sort of just general self-certainty that we that we have that we're right. And now I've, I've forgotten the exact way that you phrased that that question. That I was oh. getting towards answering.
0: Mm, I have forgotten how I phrased it too.
1: <laughs> That's what
0: happens when you hit 50. I think it had something I'm to afraid. do with what
1: I was just babbling about. but um, uh. it's,
0: it's all downhill <laughs> from here on yeah. in. <laughs> I, I wanted to ask you, I mean, a, a little bit related to the topic of taboos and enmities and those kinds of things. Since you have Hosted this group a few times, and um, it's a concept about which I feel very ambivalent, and I think uh, somewhat negative. Um, I want you to ask about what you think about the IDW concept, the international international. Well, I guess they are international. Um,
1: <laughs> the international dark web sounds a lot more devious than the intellectual does, dark it? web.
0: Well, you know, Jordan Peterson is Canadian, so they definitely are somewhat. Oh, uh, Claire Lamon is. Also oh yes, and Margaret is.
1: Marget is British and uh, yeah, anglophone. The anglophone
0: ind- anglophone dark yeah. web.
1: But, <laughs> yeah. um,
0: what are they? the intellectual dark web, which I I do think is a really embarrassing name. Um, it's hmm. kind of embarrassing to describe yourself as intellectual, um, but uh, it's the name that stuck, and um, I want to know what you feel about that.
1: Yeah. So a, I just remembered what you did ask me in the last question, which was about taboos oh, and self-censorship. <laughs> so, so just to finish that thought, uh, yes, the, I do think that, self, that the, the ability to have open conversations in the mainstream media is severely curtailed at the moment when it comes to uh, hot-button cultural uh, topics. Uh, you know, even and – and part of this is that we conflate any opposition to a worthwhile uh, movement – as being equally bad so to take to take the question of me too which is the topic of of my my melbourne show it, the there are a bunch of criticisms that one might have of the me too movement which by the way on the whole i think has been a, a great movement and which i applaud um, but if you if you are to say something like uh, there are biological differences there are innate differences between the interests of men and women on average that transgresses a certain type of feminist orthodoxy which says that men and women are equal and therefore should be thought of as basically the same and in transgressing that orthodoxy you will you may find yourself lumped in with apologists for rape or sexual harassment or sexual assault so you'll be having a conversation about how women are not as interested in engineering as men are and someone who is fully indoctrinated into the Me Too psychology will hear that as being you rationalising uh, sexist males slapping their female interns on the ass and thinking that's okay. Two completely mm. separate things, but because mm. they're both part of the, they fall under the Me Too banner, attacking one of them, it's assumed that in so doing. And so I've literally seen people being accused of, of being, I mean, I think we've all seen this, being accused of, accused of being sexist, misogynistic, uh, apologists for sexual abuse because they for example think that the, there might be something innate about men being better at maths
0: mm. um,
1: so that's that's my feeling about about self-censorship and i'm tr- i'm doing all i can to uh to flout those boundaries and to tr- to trip those to trigger those trip wires and to make it okay for people to do so because there is a large amount of silence and, and self-censorship around those things. So that brings us to the intellectual or international dark web. Um,
0: that's a term <laughs> I, like, that, I prefer that, the, international, international web. <laughs> the international dark web.
1: The uh, international dark web. That's a term that Eric Weinstein coined and mm. that became popular because Barry Weiss in the New York Times did a profile of the movement to whatever extent it is, and that is really a um, – I, I feel like it's a term to describe too many disparate things to be to actually be useful. I think if what if what it means to depict is a ragtag collection of people who are not inhibited by the sort of self censorship that I was just talking about, uh, and who are sort of trying to have conversations that that bridge. Um, yeah that, that 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 explore things that you're not allowed to generally say uh w- at least not without being pilloried on social media uh, or potentially uninvited to campuses to speak and so on then you could make a case that there are people like sam harris brett and eric weinstein margid Nawaz, mm, douglas murray who was also at the event that i was moderating in sydney so i long story short i i've, I've moderated some of some of these events i used to do charity work for the richard dawkins foundation and have moderated his events i don't even know if he could be included in this sort of thing or you know is a ricky gervais for example part of an intellectual dark web he he thinks similarly and he says similarly outrageous things so it's a it's a loose aggregation but Mm. here's where i think it's totally unhelpful it also has started to include people like ben shapiro and Dave Rubin,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and I don't know whether those people have changed in the kinds of things that they believe or say, or if the uh, conception of the intellectual dark web has changed to start including them. But I don't regard uh, I don't regard them as being um, sort of. Fiercely committed to intellectual independence. Mm. I regard them as being people who say um, fairly obvious, predictable, bog standard things that you would find in any number of conservative publications and outlets. Um, yes. So I don't think I don't think the term is particularly useful, but I think it, <laughs> I think if it didn't exist, you'd have to invent it or something like it to, des- to describe people who are more like Joe Rogan or Sam Harris groping their way through. Uh, the intellectual landscape, trying to make honest, uh, uh, honest
0: Hmm. Yes, I I feel also there's a big distinction between Rubin and Shapiro, who are uh, who are both basically party hacks, I would say. I don't. Mm. I'm not sure what the best term is, but they're so very obviously partisan and spouting kind of talking points they're not really open to change um, they're not kind of exploring ideas I d- never get the feeling that um, mm. Shapiro is Shapiro is no philosopher he's not interested in finding out the truth he wants to score points for his team and yeah. you know, gain victories Are those kind of YouTube. Yeah um videos of him with the ridiculous titles that people have given him, given them which is obviously not you know he hasn't chosen those titles but those crazy kind of um you know ben shapiro rapes murders and eviscerates um snowflake liberal and eats her entrails <laughs> um, you know those kinds of <laughs> those kinds of mm, titles mm. um he yeah, looked. well,
1: it's very, I mean, they're, they're very kind of, it's very 4chan-y. It's very sort of, it's very alt-righty young male, um, you know, making libertards cry. And, yes. and that just doesn't strike me as a very interesting thing to do. Like it's sort of, I suppose, a very crude way of putting the difference for me would be to ask whether or not the person is 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 trying to grapple with anything wise, like mm-hmm. I think wise is a good word rather than sort of smart because you couldn't deny that Ben Shapiro is smart. Yes. But um, whatever you think of Jordan Peterson or Sam Harris or Marjord, uh I think or certainly the Weinsteins, these are people who when you talk to them you, you get a sense that they that they want to be wise, they want to deal in ideas that will make them wise and they want to wrestle wrestle through big stuff. Whereas for me, Ruben and Shapiro are, um, I mean, the best you could say is smart or savvy, uh, but not actually, I mean, when was the last time you heard either of them say anything that that struck you as as profound?
0: Um, never actually. I mean, I, I like it when Shapiro talks about free speech. Um, and apart from that, I don't find anything he has to say valuable. And I actually don't find anything Ruben has to say valuable. Well, probably there is something. Somebody is going to now write to me and say, "But what about this thing?" But uh, let's say it's scattered. Very, very few the you know valuable ruminations are extremely few and far between. Whereas with someone like Jordan Peterson, I am not a fan of Jordan's. I uh, I'm not keen on the vast bulk of his work. And I'm frankly not very interested in it. Um, And I dislike his entire delivery and approach. But I don't have the feeling that he is just point scoring. You know, Mm. there is a philosophical component behind it with which you can agree or disagree. And I think you can disagree. And that's one thing people seem to have lost the knack of. You can disagree even quite strongly without necessarily thinking that he is an evil person you know I have no views about him as a person I think he's probably quite charming but uh I can see that he is you know there's some thought that is going into his um Mm. his views and stances and I think that it's sincere um, and not just instrumental. It's not purely rhetorical or kind of oratorical. You know, it's not meant to just persuade and get you to sign mm. sign at the dotted line. It's not Shapiro's thing. Always has this salesman like, and so does Rubin. They have this salesman like quality. Mm.
1: Yes, and I think the uh, I think Peterson. I mean, Peterson is an absolutely fascinating phenomenon simply because of the impact that he has been able to have as someone who is. Quite a wonkish, uh, pseudo profound professor, and not somebody who is primarily a rhetorical point scorer. Um, Mm. And uh, to come back to this question about self censorship and taboos, I don't think that, I mean, I think Peterson is the ultimate uh, example of being in the right place at the right time, where uh, whatever you, whether you love him or hate him, there is nothing that can explain. His meteoric earth-shattering success, other than he is, he was he had a a prepackaged, articulate philosophy that he had honed over many decades about why a particular strain of identitarian, he would say, neo-Marxist thinking is wrong. Mm. And he was ballsy enough to articulate that position. In every opportunity he could at precisely the moment when everybody felt like they were being censored from raising any questions about about this stuff so at at precisely the moment and you know you could say the same of donald trump on a much stupider level <laughs> like trump trump doesn't have the intellectual rigor of peterson so i'm not in any way comparing peterson <laughs> uh, peterson's intellectual capability to to trump's but Trump had a prepackaged, savvy set of nimble, tap-dancing kind of um, anti-identitarian, anti-immigrant policies, populist policies that he was able to pull off the shelf with the help of Steve Bannon uh, and uh, Coulter and and similar-minded people. And uh, were it not for the fact that the nation was exhausted by a certain amount of political correctness and smug, white liberal guilt, uh, Trump wouldn't have gotten over the line with those 70,000 votes that just happened to to coalesce for him in three swing states. And I think nor would Jordan Peterson be the phenomenon that he is were it not for the fact that we we, we spent the past few years or decades telling anybody who didn't toe a certain ideological line about feminism and racism and white guilt that they were fucking idiots and... Racists, And so they told us to get fucked, and and, and here we are.
0: Mm, mm. Well, I feel the same thing happened with Charles Murray um, because, you know, the bell curve, um, I'm going to do a Joe Rogan and look up live, my lovely assistant, (laughs) who I don't have, so I have to do it myself, when the bell curve was published. I know that I read it shortly after it uh, came out. And uh, 1994... Um, so I, I remember reading The Bell Curve um, as a freshly published book, and it's quite a boring uh, book. Sorry, Charles, if you were listening. <laughs> um, and, you know, it just has this one small section where he gives the average IQs by race of Asian Americans, um, white Americans, Hispanics and blacks. And I just sort of looked at that and I was like, whoa, <laughs> I don't like the idea of this at all. Um, you know, I didn't mm. even really have much opinion on whether it was true or not. And then I turned the page and he said, um, we don't know whether this is a matter of genes or environment it could be a bit of one a bit of the other equal amount of both, almost all of one and none of the other who knows. And it, I mean, he he mm. kind of immediately negated any uh, really strong significance to it, and then the book continued in its in its on its other themes which are not primarily about race. Um, and I think between reading the book, when it came out and um, you know two years ago when Murray or was it three years ago when Murray was attacked at Middlebury College, um, I had not given it a second thought. And now suddenly I feel like every other article that's gone viral on Twitter is about links between race and IQ. Everybody wants to talk mm. about this topic. And I do feel that for many people, not for all, but for many people, the reason they want to talk about it is simply that it's the naughty topic.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: If we, if we were just like, so you think African Americans have an average or lower IQ, oh, so What? People would just mm. shut up, and I wish they would because I'm so heartily sick of the topic um, I don't feel mm. qualified to have an opinion about it either way um, i'm uh, I'm quite certain I don't have an especially high i q myself and uh, i don't care and i I really have no you know I have no feelings about it either way, and I have zero opinion.
1: I mean, I think there's something interesting to be said here about free speech mm. and and the way that that term gets gets used because um, so Charles, you know, was deplatformed, well, attacked, I suppose, at Middlebury College. And then in an act of solidarity, Sam Harris had him on his podcast. Right, yes. Because free speech. But in some respects, I think Sam misjudged that because uh, free speech today is getting used by uh, the Dave Rubens of the world and I suppose the alt-right of the world as a reason to elevate voices that really don't deserve to be elevated simply because other people are trying to quash those voices. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure that logic holds. I don't think that if I say that... um, that black people are, are monkeys and someone says to me that's a horrible thing to say you shouldn't say it that you then have the obligation to give me a platform to say that black people are monkeys simply because someone else was telling me not mm. to now again this is an analogy i'm not saying that's what charles was saying or what charles meant in his book but there is a lot of that currently going on on the right where you know this is a free speech issue we have to be able to invite noxious people to say terrible things uh in favor you know it's the milo ianopoulos phenomenon you know he milo intentionally says things that he knows are going to make people angry and try to ban him and then the banning of him uh becomes the story in itself and leads to more bookings for him to talk about the fact that he was banned and ben shapiro pedals in this you know they all do it's like it's like the the attack on their speech becomes the the rationale for listening to them. I'm sorry, that's just not a very good reason for listening to somebody. Um, free speech is something that is enshrined in the US Constitution, and the government should not impede anybody's speech. But that doesn't mean that private individuals can't be dismissive of stupid or nasty things that you mm. say, and that if those people are, that that I have an obligation to, to listen to mm. you. Um, so I, I think this is a there are two things going on here. One is you're right that there's this kind of frisson of the taboo in a lot of this stuff. And that, you know, everyone's talking about race and IQ precisely because it's been so taboo to talk about. I I have seen this sort of thing unfold in a very real way in my own country in Australia, where we have a very high rate of immigration. Australia has three times the immigration rate of the United States uh, per capita and twice canada's rate it's one of the highest immigration rates of any country in the world and that has that is very popular and australians support it um, largely because we have total control over the borders so there's no sense of of us being invaded by people who we don't want to be invaded by that's a whole other question but during the 1980s there was a large influx in the 70s and 80s of asian uh people into australia and australia had previously been a white European country, with the exception, obviously, of the Indigenous population. And um, and that caused a lot of people to feel uneasy about immigration. But to raise any question about the very high rate of immigration was to invite accusations of racism and bigotry. And that enforced consensus lasted for about 10 years and then exploded in the uh, creation of a new political party called One Nation, which was a sort of tacitly racist anti-immigrant party that has never gotten more than about 10% of the vote, but that still exists. And I can't help but wonder if we'd been less judgmental of the people who were raising concerns about the pace of immigration in the 80s, whether or not you just never would have had the anti-immigrant movement and you could make the same case potentially of the Trump phenomenon. Mm. So on the one hand, I agree with you. There is um, a a huge cost to creating taboos because the taboos drive the idea that they oppose underground and make it sexy. Uh, You know, all of a sudden we can talk about how black people are intellectually inferior to white people because we haven't been allowed to talk about that before and this is really naughty. But the other thing that's going on is that I think we need to have a lot more responsibility as media personalities and podcasters and broadcasters, about ensuring that we don't allow our commitment to quote unquote free speech to be uh, to lead us astray and lead us into into elevating ideas that don't deserve to be elevated just because other people want to suppress mm. them.
0: I mean, I feel I'm very I'm a free speech extremist. I used to say absolutist, but. Um, uh, Pedants can always nitpick some holes in that word. So I'm going with extremists. <laughs> but I do feel that although, I mean, I feel that free speech is the bedrock of all other freedoms. And without it, human knowledge, art, progress are all impossible. So it's it's vital. It's absolutely vital. But it has more and worse trade-offs than any other value that I believe it. And As a result, Mm. I feel that although there should should not be a legal obligation nor even a societal obligation, so for example, I don't think anybody should be banned from Twitter uh, except in the case of believable incitement to violence or believable threats or doxing, let's say, and maybe a few other things like Mm. uh, soliciting minors for sex or something, a few kind of heinous things that are... That are beyond the law. But in general, I don't think anybody should be banned for their awful opinions. But I also feel that there is a duty that we have, there's a moral duty to not spread bad speech like that, but to try to counter it with better speech. And I don't always manage that, even though it is literally my religion. (laughs) Um, It's literally the Mm. I know that you're an atheist and you probably think this is really stupid, but it is literally at the core of my religion is the idea of good thoughts, good words, good deeds. Mm. You can't control what other people are saying. You can't control how people will interpret what you say, how they will deliberately twist it who you might influence for ill because you know there's always a danger when you speak and say things that people will agree with you who you don't want to have agreeing with you and they will use your words for their own nefarious purposes but you still have a duty to be as sincere and truthful as possible in, including and perhaps especially on uncomfortable topics even if it's what you are saying seems to be in the new kind of trendy adjective that people are using adjacent to something that is bad adjacent Mm. is not the same as the thing itself and some topics you need to skirt close to the wind in order to approach them courageously and truthfully and to do that is to continuing this silly metaphor but to do that is to take the wind out of the sails of people who are going to put a more extreme and taboo point very often, because you're conceding, okay, you're a little bit correct in this, but your conclusions are completely off the wall, rather than just, here I am, totally over here in another universe, not even acknowledging anything that you're saying. I don't know if I'm making any sense here.
1: No, you are. You are. I think that, yeah. I I, I, I largely agree with that.
0: Um, Josh, I'm aware that we need to draw things to a close, because your time is valuable. And maybe we could we could end by talking a little bit about what you would advise people to do to create a better uh, public discourse and to encourage better journalism and media.
1: One thing I would love yeah one thing I would love everyone to do, but I think it'll take a cultural movement to make it happen would be to do a digital reset and basically quit social media well you don't have to close your account but like log off from all of your social media and delete it from your devices and not use it for i don't know a month or so and then add back in whichever social media platforms you really feel um your life is worse for not having and to do that thoughtfully and to take into account the downsides as well as just the upsides of being on these platforms because I do think that our kind of sort of mindless automatic adoption of these platforms so that, you know, you started out with a Facebook account, checking it twice a day, you'd check it once in the morning, you check it once in the evening, you'd see your, your friend's nieces cute photos from her excursion and that'd be that. Now, we have twenty-two-year-old software engineers on skateboards in Silicon Valley who are intentionally creating algorithms to capture your attention for the lo- longest period of time possible, and to rig um, the, the the interface of the app in such a way that it sort of co-opts your your the meat computer in your head uh, to try to make it as addicted as possible to the notifications uh and to the to the content and, and i just don't i think there's there's nothing healthy about that psychologically and there's nothing healthy about that in terms of the echo chamber that it creates and there's nothing healthy healthy about that in terms of how closed off you uh you become from the bigger picture about what really matters in life and so i would encourage people to spend i mean I would encourage everybody to get off social media for a month and then judiciously re-add uh, their, whichever platforms they miss. But since nobody's going to do that, I would, I would encourage them to be more judicious in how much they use it and dip their toe back into finding some mainstream media uh, outlets that do do a good job. Like I was just listening the other day to on the media uh, from is it WNYC or NPR, Bob Garfield. And uh, I mean, that is a wonderful show that is done that is produced by a big behemoth mainstream, uh, broadcasting institution. My show, the people versus on radio national is a great show. You will hear, you know, we recently did an episode about whether or not Islam is compatible with Western liberal values in Australia. Um, it, you know, the, I think gradually some of the taboos are falling, and the self-censorship is intentionally being deconstructed by people like myself in, a, in my tiny little way. And so, if people can can find those things, so that they don't risk tumbling down rabbit holes of misinformation from less reputable sources, then you know cling on to those little little life rafts and spend less time in the miasma of social media and reward good journalism and good commentators, whether that's on Patreon or by subscribing to a publication. And, uh, and most importantly, in your everyday life, find ways of being generous towards points of view that strike you as uh, bizarre or misinformed, because they're probably not 100% as bizarre and misinformed as you assume they are. And buy a ticket to my Melbourne Comedy Festival show at comedyfestival.com.au and subscribe to The People Versus and subscribe to We The People Live. (laughs) And have a great day.
0: (laughs) I will put all those links into the show notes. I don't want to leave people feeling they should stop reading uh, new media (laughs) since I am the sub-editor of a a digital magazine. (laughs) So um, I would would just say that... um, Uh, I've recently been reading, I'm not going to go on for a long time, don't worry, but I've recently been reading Daniel Pink's book, um, Drive. And one of the big takeaways from that book and um, is that, and I definitely feel this in my own life, is that you, you can't get the best creativity when people are extremely anxious. So if you have, if you're keeping your if you are effectively, you, the public, because you are paying our wages, are keeping writers on starvation wages, you are not going to get as creative thinking from them. Uh, that's my strong belief. If you are waking up in the night wondering how you're going to pay your rent, that is headspace that is not, you're not putting into diving into a topic. So I would suggest if you want creative, unfettered, creative, Thinking of high quality, then send a cup of coffee in a month in the direction of the writers or publications that you value.
1: Yes, I completely agree, and I should I should add that I, I I would not include in my uh, condemnation of the miasma of new media uh, intellectual publications like yours or other online things. Just because something's online doesn't make it part of the uh, part of the noise. Sure. there are great things happening on, online. But I was simply making the the point that there is also a lot of opportunistic, uh, clickbaity, conspiratorial stuff that Absolutely. you can you can uh, yeah help yourself in avoiding by uh, sticking with brand names. But you can establish a brand name online too. It doesn't have to be offline.
0: Yes, we're trying. I I have to say that I do a lot of um, when people send articles to us that are a little bit ranty in places. Uh, whenever there's a sentence like. How could the other side be so stupid as to X? If the rest of the article is good, uh, we publish it, but I just quietly remove all those ranty bits. <laughs> <laughs> good news. Uh, Josh, is there anything that you feel you want to say that I haven't given you a chance to say?
1: No, you've given me a wonderful chance to say, say everything. It was, uh, it was a great pleasure being on the show. Thanks for the invitation.
0: Thank you so much for for joining us for this kind of 69 podcast, as it were. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much, George. What a way to put it. (laughs) Thanks, Ayanna. You've been listening to 2 for Tea, the accompanying podcast for Ario magazine. Ario is a nonpartisan political and cultural digital magazine with a universal liberal humanist slant, edited by Helen Pluckrose, with the assistance of sub-editor Yours Truly. At ARIO, we hope to counter the current atmosphere of frenzied partisanship and hysteria with calm, well-reasoned articles and civil discussions. Both ARIO and Two for Tea are entirely audience-supported. You, our readers and listeners, make these conversations possible. You can support the magazine, the podcast, or both, on Patreon. Look for Ario, A-R-E-O, A for Apple, R for Robert, E for Edward, O for Orange, and 2 for T. All patrons will get access to free monthly patron-only podcasts and other perks. Plus, by becoming a patron, you will keep these platforms alive and flourishing. Two for Tea is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and all other podcast subscription sites. If you're listening on a podcast app, take a moment to hit that subscriber button. Give us a rating. Write us a brief review, even just a couple of words. Spread the news. Thank you so much for listening. Have a wonderful week.